John G. Patton is a famous name in the history of Christian missions. He was a pastor of a healthy, fruitful church in Glasgow, Scotland, but felt the call of God to travel to the South Sea Islands, just east of Fiji and north of New Zealand, an area of the world where only 19 years earlier, two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris, had been martyred and eaten by cannibals. He was mocked and criticized for leaving a thriving ministry only to go in all likelihood to his death. But Patton was unmoved and he traveled to the island of Tana in 1858. In his first year on the island, he lost both his wife and newborn son to illness, which left him alone, a stranger amongst a tribe of cannibals for four years. He slept in his clothes, ready to run for his life at the sound of coming warriors. And over the course of his four years, he was struck with life-threatening fever 14 different times. At the end of his four years on the island, he and his one convert from among the people packed up to flee for their lives at the risk of of, uh, being overrun by these tribesmen. And as they're on their way to the boat, they're caught and they're surrounded and, and they think this is the end. But somehow they survive. And about that moment... Uh, John Patton writes this in his autobiography. He says, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, Not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. Though only one man had come to faith in his four years of ministry on the island of Tana, in the years to come, Patton would minister the gospel on the nearby island of Anua and live to see the entire population of that island come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not a big island, but the whole island. He goes down in history as a man of bold faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus. And I tell you that story um, because honestly, it's one among many of faithful men and women who loved the Lord Jesus and had a faith just like ours, who, who knew Jesus, who loved him, who wanted to follow him with their lives. And yet these men and women understood where God had called them. God had called them to a particular ministry and there where God had placed them, they committed themselves to serving him faithfully. And even in the face of of what would feel like failure, you can imagine how discouraged a man like John Patton could feel at the end of four years on an island with only one convert to speak of his ministry. You can imagine how how discouraged he would feel as he walks off that island, as he flees for his life. In fact, many, many people did mock him and deride him for leaving. And yet he pressed on and he goes to a nearby island and proclaims the gospel and there a whole island comes to faith. Somehow he had this grit in him to press on right where God had called him with gospel courage and be faithful to Jesus. I wanna know how to live that way. I want to know how to live with that kind of courage because the things that John Patton knew, I know, we know, right? We know that if we, when we die, 
when the day comes or when Christ returns, that we'll go to be with him. If our faith is genuine, if it's sincere, on that day, we're gonna go and be with God. We don't have to be afraid of the day that he calls us. That's actually, in some ways, it's a bit of an exciting thing that he'll call us home one day. We know that to be true. And, and we know also, just like John Patton said in his, in his writing, that nothing happens apart from the permission of Jesus Christ, that no spear was gonna leave its vibrating hand unless Jesus allowed it to happen. That's, that's true of our life. We know that's true. And so I, I wanna live a life that has that kind of gospel courage that says, Jesus, I know you are who you say you are and you have called me to something and I wanna be faithful right where you've called me. And that's the question I want to tackle today. That's actually the question that Paul answers for us in 2 Timothy chapter one. Uh, we, we're in a series of, of seconds. So we just finished 2 John. And now we're gonna do a bit of an overview of, of 2 Timothy. There's four chapters, and in the next four weeks, we're gonna do one chapter a week. And so we're starting in 2 Timothy chapter one. And the letter finds Paul, as he's writing it, he's in, he's in prison. And this is actually uh, the last letter he is gonna write in the New Testament before he dies, before he is killed for his faith. And so these words are of a man, a dying man, passing on his passion, his vigor, his longing for people to hear the gospel, his longing for the church to be healthy and thriving, he's passing it on to his protege, Timothy. And Timothy is the pastor at the church in Ephesus. You remember the letter to the Ephesians. It's that church that Timothy is pastoring. But when this letter comes to Timothy, uh, there's an air of discouragement around him. There, there's an air of frustration, maybe even a hint of, of failure as we're gonna see in later chapters that there are a number of false teachers who have risen up against Timothy. And as he's trying to preach sound doctrine, they're saying, well, hold on, that's not true, right? They're, they're driving up to church in their Rolls Royce and they've got their blue jackets and their, their shiny ties. People wanna to listen to those people. And Timothy's, Timothy's probably a little discouraged by it. He's feeling the opposition, but he's not only feeling it on the inside, he's feeling it from the outside, that the, the world around him, the, the pagan culture is saying, what are, what are you? What are you? You're not like us. We don't like what you have to say. And they're pushing back against it. And and as Paul writes to Timothy, you can see that he's trying to urge him to be courageous and bold in the ministry that God's given him. And so when he starts the book, when he starts 2 Timothy with chapter one, that, that's, that's what we need to hear, is Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, who is right where God has called him to pastor this church in Ephesus, but quite likely is feeling this discouragement and frustration. So how, in the midst of whatever's going on in our lives, how is it that you and I, how is it that Timothy can live a life of faithful gospel courage right where God has placed him? Where can you and I, how can you and I live a life of faithful gospel courage right where God has called us? So as we, as we work our way through this chapter, I'm gonna make three points, three things for us to do in, in our endeavor to live this kind of courage. So the first is this, we need to do the work, we need to take the flack, and we need to trust the process. Do the work, take the flack, and trust the process. Let's start with the first of those, do the work. And I'm gonna read from verse five down to verse seven. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, for what reason? Because I'm sure that your faith is sincere. I've seen it. You love Jesus, you know him. Because your faith is sincere, I'm gonna say this to you. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, 
which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So in light of Timothy's faith, Paul knows that he's a sincere follower of Jesus. He's, he's seeing him from afar. He knows this to be true of him from his time with him. I know your faith is sincere. I'm going to tell you to do this. Fan into flame the gift of God that's in you. You, you can get, get the image, right, of fanning something into flame. If you've ever been camping or if you've ever watched Survivor, you know how necessary oxygen is to a healthy fire, right? If you find coals that are still warm, hasn't quite been totally put out yet, you put some fresh kindling over top of it, and if you blow into those coals, fire will erupt from where there was no fire before. And so whether, whether or not Paul's saying, Timothy, you're, you've lost the fire and you need to rekindle it, or, or Paul is saying, look, you're doing good, but you need, you need to work all the more Nonetheless, Paul is telling him, look, Timothy, fan into flame this gift that God has given you. And that gift, the gift that God had given to Timothy was a spiritual gift. In all likelihood, our best guess, and it seems to make sense, would be to say that this is the gift of preaching and teaching. That Timothy had been ordained as a pastor in this church to preach and teach the word. And the reason we think it's because you look over these letters, First and Second Timothy, and Paul's consistent encouragement to Timothy is, is, Timothy, teach sound doctrine. Timothy, preach the word. So it's, it seems like this is the gift that Paul wants him to exercise. But regardless of whether it is preaching or teaching in particular, what we know to be true of every spiritual gift, because we read this in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, you can't miss it, is that every spiritual gift that God gives is for the good of his church. It's for building up the people of God. It's for the work of ministry among us. So Paul is saying, Timothy, you, you have been given a particular gift and you need, to, you need to use it. You need to do work with it. But not only that, Timothy, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. Let's, let's finish the, the verse here. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So when you would lay on hands back in that day, that there was an image, um, that it was a symbol that was used when you were affirming someone as a new elder. So you can imagine a, a, jump, a bunch of men gathering up on stage and one man is about to be affirmed as a new elder in a local church. What they would do is the, the other man would, would reach out and put their hand on his shoulder and they would, they would pray for him and, and pray that God would bless him in his ministry. It was, it was a... a, a an expression of affirmation into the ministry. This, this man will be an elder in our church. So Paul's saying, look, I, I did this to you. I, I laid my hands on you to affirm you as an elder here at this church in Ephesus. And this gift, preaching and teaching, whatever it might be, this, this is your gift. It's in you because you've been called to the ministry. You have a work to do. You have a place to be faithful and you have a gift to do it. Paul says to Timothy, use it, do the work. But he, but he finishes uh, this thought with verse eight. So, uh, sorry, verse seven. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This spirit that God has given us isn't a spirit of timidity. This isn't a spirit of fear. Right, we actually, sometimes we take this verse a bit out of context, right? Where we talk, we say, whenever we're fearful of something, we say, well, you know, God, the spirit God gave us isn't a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. It's not entirely wrong, but it's not actually what the verse is talking about. He's, he's talking about the gift that God had given to, to Timothy. Listen, you, you've been empowered by the Spirit of God 
And the Spirit of God, it doesn't make us timid. The Spirit of God gives us power, love, and self-discipline, right? Power, there is a, a capability, a productivity that you have in this. Love, you, you offer it of yourself freely. That you're, that's not motivated by selfish desires. This is for the, you're giving of yourself for the good of others. This is motivated by love and self-discipline. You, you can keep at it. You're empowered by God to stick with it. This is the spirit that's in you, not a spirit of timidity, not a spirit of fear. So Timothy, you know this, you know this. So here's what I want you to hear, right? We know that this letter is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor. And and so the the letter's not written to us, right? It's, It's a letter written to Timothy. But as with every other text of scripture, it is written for us, right? We're meant to listen in and to learn something from it. And so what I want what I want you to understand as we listen into Paul urging Timothy to do the work, to use his gifts, what I need you to understand is this, that you, dear Christian, you have a ministry and you have a gift or gifts, plural. So do the work. You have a ministry and you have a gift or gifts. So do the work. You, you, did you know that when, actually before the beginning of time, God prepared for you good works that you should live in them, that you should walk in them. We actually were told that in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, that God prepares for us good works beforehand that we should walk in them, right? God has written out, this is in in the Psalms, as David's writing, he says that, Lord, you've written before you all the days of our lives. God God has planned for us to walk in certain good works. And so he has placed us in a particular place, a particular location and called us to be faithful there where these good works are. So that ministry that you are called to is a ministry where God has placed you. And let me just convince you that you have a ministry for a second. Ephesians chapter four, 11 and 12 say this. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave them to equip the saints. Who are the saints? They're the people of God. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Notice that. Uh, the, the saints are given a work of ministry for the building up of the When we think of the word ministry, you think of the minister, right? The pastor. The minister has the ministry. But here, here's, it's, here's the thing. The word ministry simply means service. Right? When you hear of a minister, a pastor, a minister, it just means that they're a servant, a minister of the gospel. They're a servant of the gospel. So when, when, when I say to you, you have a ministry, I'm saying that there is, a, there is planned in your life, purposed for you, particular places of service, particular places where God has called you to be of aid to the people of God among you and to call people into that family, call people who do not know Jesus into that family. He's placed you in, in a particular place. Ministry, particular, so he's given it to you. So what is your ministry? What is, what is, what is your ministry? Now, if, if we just take it as service, it could be totally broad. And that's not actually a bad way to understand it, that we serve God in faithfulness to him wherever we are. You, you have a ministry to your family. God has called you to serve your family. God has called you to serve your spouse. He's called you to serve, to minister in your neighborhood to minister in your workplace, to minister to serve in your church. You you have a ministry. There are works before you. So what are those things? What in particular has God enabled you to be a part of? Because as we're gonna see in a second, he's actually uniquely empowered you to be effective there. 
What is your ministry? What, what has God given you? And all of us have this, what, the Great Commission, right? All of us. To go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded us, right? All of us have that calling. All of us have that ministry. But there is a particular place, there is a particular purpose that God has for you. And part of what we, how we can find that is by understanding that, secondly, you, first you have a ministry, secondly, you have a spiritual gift or gifts. Did you know that at the moment that you were saved, in the moment that you trusted in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God came to dwell in you and is now uniquely empowering you for something? And it's, and it's different than me, right? We may have what we would call the same spiritual gift, but the flavor of it is going to be different because you're different than me. You might have, you might have <clears throat> the gift of hospitality. I actually... Um, pastored up in Maple Ridge for uh, years before I came here to Northview. And I was the young adults pastor there. And I had a bit of a, a mantra, which I just seemed to ring true in the ministry as I was doing it, that the tongue is loosed at two. By that, I just meant that if you want to have real meaningful conversations with people, those conversations happen at 2 a.m. And I was meaning this in the context of, of young adults. And so generally, the the makeup of our week as a young adult ministry would be on Sunday night, we'd get together for this big Bible study and we would finish at about nine, but people would then hang out and we'd hang out playing board games. We'd have snacks, we'd laugh, we'd talk and we'd stay up till like two, 4 a.m. sometimes. And we would have rich, deep gospel conversations. And then on Thursday, we would have a bit of an outreach ministry and we would, we would end up back hanging together and people would be playing board games and talking. We would have rich gospel conversations as the night went long, two, three, four, sometimes 5 a.m. We'd be having these long conversations. In order to have those conversations, we needed a place to be. So there is a marvelous couple who live in Maple Ridge who just so happened to be my in-laws now, fancy that, who offered their home to our young adult ministry. And I'm sure we were loud. They wanted to go to bed. We would be up till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. We, we would be making noise. We'd be laughing. We would, pro we would I'm sure, have left a mess after hanging out there. And yet, not a word of complaint, but sheer joy from that couple as they cared for us and loved us. They offered anything out of their shelves for us to eat as we hung out. They used a gift of hospitality for the good of the church. And there are lifelong friendships. There are believers in Jesus because of what happened, because God was good to us. Here at our, here at our church, there are women, Kathy Letkeman, Chrissy Fair, Alessandra Paletti de Janzen, Ruth Ross. These women keep us out of jail because they use their gifts in administration for the good of the church. I mean, maybe I can include Jonathan Giesbrecht, but I don't even know what he does. They use their gifts for the good of the church. There are all sorts of gifts, all sorts of manifestations of the Spirit in us where God has uniquely empowered us for a particular work, for a particular service. So what is your gift? It's a question. A lot of people ask that question. I wish I had a lot of time to plunge into that. But just on the surface, what I can tell you is this, is you, in order to find out what, where God has gifted you, where he has empowered you, you just need to serve. You need to find something that's a need, whether it's in the church, that would be great, or something in the community. Find something that's a need and serve, and be with people, help them. And where you find that there is particular productivity, there's particular fruitfulness, 
and that fruitfulness, not just to your own good, but to the glory of God. And that that fruitfulness fills you with joy. There might be reason to think that maybe God has gifted you there. But what I need you to hear is that you have a ministry and God has equipped you. He has formed you. He has made you exactly as he intended to because he has work for you to do. So if you want to live a life of faithful gospel courage, you have to do the work. You have to try and find where you can fit and you got to serve and you have to love by the power of the spirit who's in you. Do the work. But secondly, we we have to take the flack. (laughs) Um, We were, Shalina and I were having dinner with a couple from our church. They're a great couple. And and as we were talking, um, we just got on the the topic of just how incredibly messy the world is. In particular, the, the culture that we live in here in North America and Canada. That there are certain things that we are sure are true because we read them in the scriptures. And yet the world, the culture is drifting farther and farther and farther from it. And now they're pushing back and, and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. How can you say that about us? How can you say that's true when what I, what I feel is something totally different? And then the divide is getting greater and greater and greater, at least on the outside, though it's been great on the inside. And the, and the question is, how, how, do we, how do we live in this mess? And some of the temptation that we have is, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we need to be not so hard. Maybe... Maybe democracy is the right way to go about this. What, what does the majority think? It's tempting. But, he, but here's what Paul says to, to Timothy, verse, verses 8 to 12. Let me read the chunk. He says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Remember, Paul's in jail because he is proclaiming the gospel. Don't be ashamed of us. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and then an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the gospel that you cling to. Yes, people are going to oppose you. Yes, false teachers are gonna come and try and battle you. Don't be ashamed of it, Timothy. Stand up and suffer with me for the gospel. That's what he's saying. And this isn't, this isn't new, <laughs> In Christianity, for us, even here, as we're talking, as we're feeling this divide in our culture, as things are becoming more acceptable to the world, and we're still trying to stand on the side of biblical truth and say, ah, just, it's not true. This isn't new for us. This has, been, this has been true since the beginning. You have in Acts chapter 7, the story of Stephen as he's martyred for his faith. He's, he's stoned to death because of his proclaiming of the gospel. You have shortly after The New Testament is written. You have a man called Polycarp of Smyrna and he refuses to light incense to the Roman emperor because he he was gonna refuse to worship the emperor as God. And he's burned at the stake. He doesn't even die when he's burned at the stake so they have to stab him to death. You have a story of John Patton who's one man standing on an island of cannibals. 
And you have even to this day where we feel the divide in morals and in opinions in our culture, you have even to this day, you have people in the Middle East and you have people in China who profess their faith in Jesus Christ and are put to death because of it. We need to, we need to take the flack. There's, there's not another option. We need to take the flack because the world opposes the gospel. But why is that? Why, I think all of us in some part have felt, why can't we all just get along? Why, why does there have to be this battle between us? Why does there have to be a, a war of morals in the world? A war of ethics? Well, verse, verses 9 to 12 tell us why, right? In, I mean, in verse 8, he said, the reason that they're opposing us, the reason that we're suffering is for the gospel. But why? Why do people oppose this message? Right? But we just read it. There's, there's some, it's great. It's filled with great news. I wish we had time to, to tackle every line in there. But Jesus defeats death. He destroys death. He brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why, why don't people love this message? Well, in verse 9, there's two statements that I think are really good summaries as to why. And the, the first is, he says in verse 9, he has saved us. To say that Jesus has saved us, to say that God has saved us, presses up against the world's self-identity. And they push back on it. Right? What do you mean? What do you mean I need saving? I don't need saving. I'm good enough. I've lived a great life. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've helped people and I've served. And I've done. The, I'm a good person. You can't tell me I need to be saved. Right? It pushes against their identity. <laughs> You're trying to tell them, no, 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 in your heart. I know this is true, that there's a wickedness and a sinfulness and a selfishness. And what you need is Jesus to come and rescue you. That's what you need. But they're like, no, no, no. I don't believe that to be true about me. And they press back because we're pushing on their self-identity. But the other half of verse 9, right? God has saved us and called us to a holy life. And the call to a holy life presses up against the world's self-expression. Well, you're telling me that this is the right way to live? No, no, no. This is how I want to live and it's good. And not only do you need to affirm me, you need to celebrate me. For us to stand and say, no, this is how God has called us to live a life set apart to the, to the Lord, holy to him. In the way that he intended us to live, it is going to push up against the self-expression of those around us. And they're going to push back. And they're going to oppose it. Because they like the way they live. There's a great story in uh, a book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. He tells this story about Billy Graham going golfing with President Gerald Ford and two golf professionals at this beautiful golf course. And they go for the round of golf, play 18 holes, and they come off. And one of the other employees sees them walking off and sees one of the, the golf pros in particular storming off of the 18th hole. And he walks right past the employee and the employee looks at him and says, whoa, uh, how'd it go? And the guy says, that Billy Graham, who gives him the right to stuff religion down my throat? And the employee's like, whoa. And so the guy, the pro goes off and he blows off some steam at the, at the practice range. And as he comes back, he's, he's calmed down a bit and the employee looks at him. He says, so, so Billy Graham really laid it on you out there, eh? And the pro responds, well, we never talked about religion once. I just had a bad round. It's fascinating that a man who was not in any way being pursued or challenged felt opposed, felt 
like he was against Billy Graham. And that's just true. As we endeavor to live holy lives, we're going to have to take some flack for it. And if we want to live lives of gospel courage, right, remembering that nothing happens apart from the permission of Jesus, we just, we have to embrace it. (laughs) That's what Paul's saying. Timothy, suffer with me for the gospel. Suffer with me for it. But but he doesn't, he doesn't just leave him there, thankfully. Uh, nobody wants to suffer, right? You don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, you know what would be great today? I want to have a bad day. Nobody wants that. Nobody goes out seeking suffering. If you do, that's, that's a bit of a problem. And so Paul says to Timothy, listen, in verse eight, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Listen, you aren't going to be able to stand up under the opposition and the frustration of the world. You're not going to be able to to stand up against the suffering that you may have to face for being faithful to Jesus. But the power of God goes with you. He goes with us to strengthen us and uphold us where we would be too weak. He is strong. It's a great story in the Old Testament. You know it. Of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to this great monument of the king, this idol that they want him to worship. They refuse to bow down. The king says, okay, into the fiery furnace you go. And they're in the fiery furnace. The king looks down and in the fire, he sees not three men. He sees four. Another man walking with them in the fire. When we step into the fire of opposition, of oppression, there's another man standing in the fire with us. By the power of God, we can do it. But we need to take the flack. So we need, we need to do the work. We need to take the flack. Finally, we need to trust the process. Trust the process. Let me read verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We need to trust the process. What would be the temptation of Timothy as he's preaching the gospel, right? He's already been doing this. He's been preaching sound teaching. He's been preaching the gospel. And now all these false teachers are coming in and saying, ooh, Timothy, that's a little sharp. That's a little hard. You can't say that. We need, to, we need to soften the blow. We need to shift things here. And that's not quite true. We need to do it this way. What would be the temptation of Timothy in those moments? Well, the temptation would be to, to maybe change the teaching a little bit. You just, just cut off some of the edges, you know, soften it up a little bit. That, wouldn't that be tempting, right? The temptation is to, is to change the process a bit. And yet, how has God determined, first of all, how has God determined to save people in the world? How has he done this? It's actually, it's, it's marvelously brilliant in the mind of God in how he's determined it to happen. But we have a verse like this in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. You can't know him through worldly wisdom. It's not possible. But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. How, does, how do people come to faith? How do people come to believe in Jesus? It's by hearing the word of God, by hearing the gospel preached. And what do we preach? We we preach, repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ. In the face of opposition, though, the temptation is to change that message a little bit. 
You know, sex outside of marriage, it's just not a hill to die on. All, all I want is for you to love Jesus. Being a part of a local church, it's just no big deal. Don't worry about it. You can live as a great, healthy Christian all on your own. You don't need, you don't need the church, right? All I, all, all I long for is for you to know Jesus, that you and Jesus are good. Honestly, don't, don't even worry about this whole repentance thing, right? Repent and believe. Forget the repent part. That sounds harsh. Forget the repent part. I just want you to know that Jesus loves you and he died for you. Here's the thing. If God is so intended that people come to faith in Jesus through the foolishness of preaching, if we change what we're preaching, will people be saved? Repent and believe in the gospel. We can't change it. And Paul's saying, keep, keep the sound teaching, Timothy. Keep it. Don't let the world push up against you and force you to change it. Keep it. But the, but the process uh, is more than just preaching the gospel to the world, more than even just preaching it to ourselves and preaching it to one another. Uh, the process is, is more than preaching. It's also living, right? First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Tim, Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans, right? The unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's the problem. In the face of opposition, in the face of pressure and frustration and failure and whatever else, here's what we might be tempted to do. We, we might stop doing certain things in front of others. The things that we know to be the right things, we might stop doing them. We, we might, on the other hand, we might start doing things that we know we shouldn't do, right? Our language starts to become fouler and fouler. Our, our jokes become crude because it's what everybody else is doing and they know that if I don't join in, I'm the outcast. We find ourselves hanging around with friends in places that maybe we shouldn't be because well, everybody does it. But for, but for Paul, no part of the sound teaching that he's passed to Timothy is optional. No part of it. Keep it, Timothy. Keep it. Keep it. And he goes on, he says, and guard it. Not just, not just keep it and make sure that you have it. Guard it. You gotta be on defense here. You gotta, you gotta know that people are gonna wanna attack and press and push and wanna work this out of you. You gotta guard it, Timothy. Trust the process. Trust that this is how people are saved. Trust that in your pursuit of holiness, God will make you sanctified. You got to trust the process. You can't change the teaching. We need to keep the sound teaching. and We need to guard the good deposit. That good deposit is the gospel. It's the treasure that God has given to us. Don't let the pressures of the world make you change that message. Because if we change the message, we lose the power. But listen, you're not alone in all these things, right? I'm saying this, this is how Paul is calling Timothy to live a faithful gospel courage kind of life. This is when he needs to do the work, take the flack, trust the process. But you don't have to do it alone. I just want, I want to point out something to you that maybe you missed as we've gone through these verses. Verse seven, for the spirit God gave us, notice God gives us his spirit, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Verse eight, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
Verse 12, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He's able to do it. I, I don't know if I am, he is. Verse 14, guard it, guard the good deposit with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You do not have to do it alone. In fact, you can't do it alone. You need the power of God to come behind you so that you can live this life of faithful courage in the face of the opposition around us. But you, need to, but you have it. That's what you need to know is, is you have the power of God with you. The spirit is in us. So we need to take courage. We need to go out and we need to say, Jesus, where you have placed me, where you have called me, I am gonna live this life certain of these truths that when I die, I will go to be with you. And even in this very moment, nothing happens apart from the permission of Jesus. And I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do the work and I'm gonna take the flock and I'm gonna trust the process. And I need your help, God, but I know you're with me. I know you're with me. God has given us a task we're not, that we're not unable to do because he's promised to be with us. Let me, let me end with another quote from John Patton. These, these words seem quite fitting to where we're landing here. He says this in his, in his autobiography. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, Nothing else in all the world could have prevented me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Those words became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Press on knowing the power of God goes with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your word and we're even thankful today for this story of John Patton and the many stories of men and women who have been faithful to you, who have had bold courage in the face of opposition and in the face of even their own death, many of them. God, I just pray that you would, you would remind us of these truths, the truth that you have called us to a particular place, to a city like Abbotsford, to a church like Northview. You've called us and you have placed us for particular works of ministry, of service, and you've equipped us for it. Lord, help us to have the courage and the boldness and the faithfulness to you to go out and live, to live out the work that you've given us to do. And we're so thankful, Lord, to know that when we take the flack, when, when people oppose us, you're with us in it. So help us to be faithful to you, God. Help us to run to you when we're weak, knowing that, that in you we find all our strength. But Lord, fill us with courage, fill us with faith, make us bold. So that one day we could hear the words from our, our beloved Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.